Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But uh, what I would like to share with you is about the Spirit of God. Tomorrow evening begins Shavuot. As I shared earlier, this is when the law was given. This is when Moses was brought into the very presence of God. It's a time when uh, the scripture passage from Ezekiel is read, in which the Spirit of God lifts him up. In Acts chapter 2, in the Brit Hashad, that's when the Spirit of God descends upon the believers gathered in the temple. And... Uh, I thought we would reflect on what Yeshua teaches about the Spirit of God. And uh, I think this is really important for us in terms of where we're headed. We need to rely upon God's Spirit to bring us forward. He's the one that has been bringing us forward through all the challenges that we have faced, through all the challenges you as an individual have faced. It's the Spirit of God that has borne us up, as it were, to enable us to move forward. And I, want, I don't want us to lose sight of his presence in our midst. So here are some things that I'd like to share with you. First of all, the central message, and and I provided a a little bit of a handout, and uh, you're welcome to fill that in as you like. And by the way, let me just say, that's a lot of work. (laughs) You know, those handouts. You think it's just typing this stuff up, and that part is the easy part. The difficult part is how you arrange the stuff on the copier to get it so that when you fold it, it's in order. And that must have taken me about three hours to try to figure out, you know. And and even then it didn't work because by the time I got to the, what is it, FedEx store, whatever on Topanga, the woman who saw me going crazy said, let me help you with that. So I can't take credit for even having arrived, you know. But there you have it, so rejoice, you know. And, uh, and use it. So anyway, five times Yeshua makes reference to the Spirit of God. We looked at that last week in uh, John's account of what transpired when he celebrated Passover with his disciples. So who is the Spirit? The Spirit of God is a person. He is not an it. And we talked about that last week. We just want to sort of review here. So here are some passages that reveal to us his personhood. Not his personality. We're talking about him as a person. And so, for example, Ephesians 4 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. He can be grieved. That is to say he has feelings because persons have feelings. It's do not. So this is why I said to my students years and years ago when I would teach them on this, 
I would have them all get up and I'd say, try to get your chair to be angry with you, you know. Try to grieve your chair. Say whatever it takes, do whatever you want. And there's no response. Why? Because a chair isn't it. But the Spirit of God is a person. Persons can be grieved. They can be frustrated. They can be made sad. And this is true of the Spirit of God as well. Not only that, the book of Hebrews has a very interesting passage. Um, If we were to look at it in its entirety... In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, I think it is. In verse 29, let me capture that passage for you. Uh, In chapter 10, beginning of verse 29, um, he says to us, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? And who has insulted is what the New International Version, but the Greek verse, the Greek word actually means who has outraged the spirit of grace. The spirit of God can be, well, New International, insulted, but that's not strong enough. You know, insulted is like you say a bad word to somebody or you demean someone. What's going on here is a a demeaning of what Messiah has done for us in giving his life a ransom for many. And as he has made known of that truth to us, us, to ignore it, to refuse it, to rebel against it, outrages the Spirit of God. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, and who has outraged the Spirit of grace. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? To think the Holy Spirit can be outraged. And that on the basis of how one responds, especially those who are seriously considering the good news of Messiah. In Romans 15, Paul speaks about the love of the Spirit. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, and by the love of the Spirit, persons love, its do not. And so the Spirit of God is a person. And what one thinks of the Spirit is important because it will affect how one goes about benefiting by the Spirit. How do we benefit by what the Spirit has provided for us? And if we think the Holy Spirit isn't it, it will be something that we will think we acquire, that we gain, that we somehow have to do things in order to have. In other words, if we think of the Spirit of God as an it, we will think of acquiring the Spirit as, as, instead of thinking of the Spirit of God acquiring us. And so if we think of the Holy Spirit as an it, we'll be thinking of acquiring it, and then we have all kinds of mechanical ways in which you acquire its. You cannot mechanically acquire persons. You cannot gain the love of a person through mechanical machinations. You cannot gain the forgiveness or acceptance of a person by any kind of mechanical steps that will naturally lead to something else. Machines, its work on the basis of mechanicalisms, but people do not. And so 
Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 demeaned the Spirit of God, thought of the Spirit as an it, and desired to acquire it. So he came up with the mechanical means. If I give enough money for this, can I too pray for people and the Spirit of God take control of them to transform them the way he saw it happen when Peter prayed for individuals or shared the good news? You cannot acquire the Spirit of God mechanically. And so Peter says, may your money perish with you to Simon. And sometimes we as believers reduce the Spirit of God as an it. Maybe we're, we're clear with our vocabulary and we don't use the word it, but we treat him as an it. And so we think that if we do certain mechanical things, the natural result will be the presence of the Spirit of God. We just change the kind of mechanisms. So we think that if we pray long enough, or about the right things, we must necessarily acquire the Spirit. We think that if we fast long enough and hard enough, or fast from really tasty things, that somehow God will look upon us with gratitude, and therefore we will naturally, necessarily, acquire the Spirit. We think that if we repent of sir, that's the problem, I haven't repented enough. Let me just tell you, and myself, remind myself, none of us repents enough because none of us even knows the, de- the depths of our sin. It is the grace of God that has saved us, and there's no mechanism to it. We think that if we refrain, the reason why I'm not experiencing the Spirit is because I am indulging in something I shouldn't be. Now, I'm not suggesting indulge all you like. I'm only saying that there's no mechanical method by which one acquires the Spirit. We think that if we get our life in order, then it will come. I'm just saying that we as believers do much like what Simon the sorcerer did when we demean the Spirit to an it kind of thing, rather than to realize we're dealing with a person in a personal relationship. And so if we recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person then we won't think of acquiring him. We will think about him acquiring us and more of us. So what we're talking about is being filled with a person. Now, you know, in class, I may have heard this hundreds, if not thousands of times. But the problem is somehow it's got to filter down into the reality of my soul and not just lodge itself in my brain. It's got to start there in my brain, but it's got to move from there to take capture my entire being. You know, the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We can read the scripture and see that the Lord is good. But what the scripture wants us to do is to taste that the Lord is good. A person can describe sugar and honey But until you've tasted it, until you've absorbed it, until you've taken it in, you only know about its sweetness from an intellectual point of view, but you haven't experienced, sensed, and experienced it. The Spirit of God is a person who encounters our life, who transforms our life, and in doing so, we experience Him in our inner 
most being, and it manifests itself outwardly on our attitudes, our actions, and our demeanor. We try to get the actions, attitude, demeanor straight so that the Spirit would take residence in us. And the Scriptures say, no, let me handle you. Let me transform you. So when we become acutely aware that the most glorious person in the universe dwells within you permanently, then a transformation can begin, I think, to occur. I heard a pastor speaking about experiencing the nature of God and this notion of God as inhabiting our space. And he talked about a circumstance where he was dealing with a couple and the husband was committing adultery. And they were on the verge of their marriage breaking up. And when he spoke with the husband and talked more and more about the challenges that were going on in his life and his adulterous affair, he confessed that when his mistress would come over his home, he always had to turn over all the photographs of his wife wherever they were in order for him to continue on with his liaison with this other woman. Why? Because a person, even though it was just a photograph, a person was resident as far as he saw that photograph. And therefore he couldn't, he had to do something about the presence of the person, even in pictorial form, that disturbed him. The Holy Spirit is a person who inhabits us. The more aware we are, like that man was aware of his wife, even though it was just through photographs, the more we are aware that the Spirit of God, the most glorious person in the universe, dwells within us, we will be that much more capable of having him have more of us. But he's not just a person. Any old person. There are many persons in our universe. There are human persons. There are angelic persons. But the person that the Spirit of God is, is a divine person. That is to say, the Spirit of God is God. Now, this gets kind of weird because we start dealing with the triunity of God. If you look at John chapter 14, you will see that Messiah says, I am going away. And then he says later, but I will come to you. And then he says, the Spirit of God I will give you. And then he says, we will come to you. And then he says, we will love you. So it gets really weird. He said he's going away, but then he says he's coming. Then he says he's gone. And then he says we'll have the Spirit. Then he says, we will love you. We will care for you. Someone has said that when you think of the triunity of God, we have to be careful about some things. Because it's a very complicated kind of thing to think about. But when you look at the scripture, by believing in the triunity of God, we are not believing in three gods. The reason we're not believing in three gods is because they're too one for that. So when Yeshua says, I'm going away, but I will come to you. And when I come to you, I'm coming to you in the spirit. And he says, and we will come to you. We will love you. They're not three gods. They are somehow one God because they're too one to be three. But on the other hand, you know, whoops, 
On the other hand, they are to three to be one. Because he said, I am going away, but the Spirit will come. And we will dwell with you. So there's a sense in which they are two one to be three, but they're two three to be one. And that is what the triunity of God is. So we'll move on. What's that? Oh, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Should I say it again? Slower? Does that help us? <laughs> I'm saying that the triunity of God is one God who exists as three persons. So there's my definition. But now when I look at these passages, I have to retain both the threeness and oneness together because he's too three to just be one and he's too one to just be three. He has to be three one <laughs> or he has to be triune. Or he has to be triunity. He can't just be tri, and he can't just be un. You know, he has to be triune. I don't know if that helps, but the spirit of God is God. Now, here's how we know that He is God, because in John, as we saw last week, Messiah said, "I'm going to send you another Comforter." We're going to come back to this word Comforter because. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, but another. In Greek, there are two different words for another. There's the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. But then there's the Greek word alas, which means another of the same kind. You and I do not have, English doesn't have that. So like I said last week, if I went into a store and I bought a shirt and I really liked that shirt and I came back and the person behind the counter recognized me and I would say, you know, I'd like another shirt like I bought yesterday. She would or he would know that I'm looking for another shirt of the same kind that I bought yesterday. And so the salesperson picks out the same one. But when I get it home, it's not really the same one because the one I have has buttons. It's Oxford. And the other one does not. So I bring back the one that does not because I want buttons. So I say to the salesperson, look, I really appreciate you giving me this shirt, but I'd really like another one. And now the salesperson knows I want another one of a different kind because I like buttons rather than no buttons. But in Greek, we don't have to worry about all that. All we have to use are two different words. But the word that Yeshua uses in John chapter 14, I'm sending you another alas. Another of the same kind of counselor. So what kind of comforter, counselor, encourager is he? Yeshua, what did Yeshua claim about himself? Because whatever he claimed about himself, the one whom he is sending could also make the same claims. Because he's another of the same kind. So what kind of claims did he make? In John chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. It's a claim to the divine name of God. No one can claim the divine name of God except God. And there's no place in Scripture where the divine name is used for anyone other than God. And John, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 is a really clear passage of that, where the Lord is referred to, Messiah is referred to, as the Lord, sacred name of God, our righteousness. Not only that, in Luke chapter 7, he said, your sins are forgiven. How does a human being who is not God forgive sins? How is it possible? Because the only one that can forgive sins is the one against whom the sin was committed. 
I mean, you may yell at Edward. You, you may have trouble with Edward. And I can come to you and say, look, I forgive you. But it's not me that can forgive you. It's Edward that must forgive if you've done something against them. I mean, I'd be happy to. I forgive you. Go, you know. The only way Yeshua can forgive all sins is if, if all sins somehow are committed against him. And the reason why all sins are ultimately committed against him is because he's God. And so when he says, I forgive you your sin, it doesn't matter who you've sinned against. He's forgiven you of it. That doesn't mean that we ought not to seek the forgiveness of others, but ultimately our sins against one another or anyone is against the God of the universe. And so when he forgives sins, he's doing only that which God can do. Yeshua says one day he's going to judge the world. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. How can Yeshua judge the world? He can judge the world because all of the world is culpable before him. And therefore, he must be God. If Yeshua is God, then one of the same kind must also be God. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, and he resides in the middle of your life. And to be filled with him is to experience incredible, unexhaustible, supernatural joy and power. Now, in John chapter 14... Verse 26, two things, you can look at it, two things Yeshua focuses on about the Spirit of God that I just want to take a few moments in closing. He focuses on him as the truth and as the counselor. I just said counsel, but counselor. But you know, counsel might be a better word. First of all, consider these verses. In John 14, he's spoken of as the Spirit of truth. He said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. To teach him all things means he's going to teach all the truth about all things. And the all things he's speaking about is the truth of God's word. In John 15, he's the spirit of truth. In John 16, he convicts the world because he's a God of truth. In 16, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all the truth. Most English translations say all truth, but the Greek is very clear, all the truth. And what he's referring to is the revelation of God in scripture. And so he's the, he is devoted to truth. And therefore, he is the author of the Bible. In 2 Peter, it says that the Spirit of God carried along the writers. In John 6, Yeshua says the Spirit gives life. And as he give life, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit, they are life. The words of Yeshua are commu- communicated to us by the work of the Spirit as writers wrote down what the Lord would have them write. Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit, speak to it. This is a really fascinating two passages I want to show you. In Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing, make music in your heart to the Lord, always give thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Now watch this, this is Ephesians 5. But if you look at Colossians, he says, let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly. Look what he says, the result of which will be, you will sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, gratitude in your hearts, do it all in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Does it sound familiar? It's exactly the same. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Look what he says, make music in your heart, give thanks. What does he say here? In your hearts, give thanks. Look what he says in Colossians, do all in the name of Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Do everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua. 
To have the filling of the Spirit, watch, is to know the word, have the Word of Messiah dwell in your heart. Having the presence of the Spirit is not just some ethereal thing where we just do our own thing. Having the Spirit of God means having the Word of Messiah dwell in your heart richly. How do you have the Word of God dwell in your heart richly? You have to be in the Word. You have to be reading the Word. You have to be studying the Word. You want the fullness of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. It is not how long you pray. It is not how long you fast. It is not how long you confess. It's not mechanical. It's a, he is a person that indwells you. How do you have him indwell you? You have his words indwell in you. How do people express their love for one another? Their words, their actions demonstrate their love for one another. How do you experience the fullness of the Spirit? The Word of God has to take resident in your heart. It has to grip your heart so that your heart tastes and sees how good the Lord is. It's the Word of God first and foremost above everything if you want to experience what God has in store for you. You cannot experience Him apart from the Word, for He is the author of the Word. If you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you must have the dwelling message of Messiah in your heart richly. I love those two passages. Notice the same results come from being filled with the Spirit and letting the words of Messiah dwell in you richly. To be filled with a person is to be dominated and saturated with the Word of God, who is authored by the Spirit of God. It does not merely mean to understand things intellectually and technically. It means to make it a part of your life so that you do the things it says. That's why Yeshua says over and over and over, why do you call me, call me, call me, that's my jersey. Why do you call me, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? We must do his word and not just understand his word. Years ago, when I worked for the American Track Society, they had a track called Missing Heaven by 18 Inches. And the distance between your head and your heart was about 18 inches. It's not enough to just have it in your head. It must take residence in your life. Ephesians says that he prays that his glorious riches may strengthen us with power so that Messiah may dwell in our hearts, not just in our heads. Nothing wrong with understanding the word well. Nothing wrong with knowing Greek and Hebrew and all that. But there is something wrong with it if it doesn't transform our lives. And it can't transform our lives by staying up here. It must grip our hearts so that our life is changed. There's no magic bullet. It is a relationship with, with the Spirit of God that comes about through His Word as it takes hold of our hearts. And we yield ourselves to its truths and we live it no matter what the consequences. Not only is the Spirit connected to truth, but He's also connected, called a counselor. He will give you another counselor. In 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, or the Father will say in chapter 15, when the counselor comes, chapter 16, unless I go away, the counselor will not come. This word counselor is not a very good word in my estimation because we think of marriage counselors. We think of camp counselors. We think of people that give us advice. That's not what this word means. The word is parakletos. Para means to come alongside. Kaleo means to be called. He's one who's called alongside of us. 
And this is a legal term. It speaks of one who's called to one's aid in a legal defense. In other words, the Spirit of God is our defense lawyer making a case for us. He is not merely in the presence of God pleading for God's mercy. He's making a case that the Lord must be merciful to us. And what's his case? The blood of Messiah. The blood of the Lamb. He's making a case that this individual has the blood of Messiah applied to his heart. You must forgive him. It isn't just, oh, please be merciful to this one. No, he's making a case as a defense lawyer. And you know what defense lawyers are like. They make their case with as much vigor and energy that they can to see that their client is found innocent. The Holy Spirit is our legal advocate, not just a counselor. He's not a comforter like a teddy bear, like, like a blanket, you know, a comforter. No, he's a legal advocate that's making a case in your behalf. And here's the amazing thing. He has to make a case for us because, number one, God the Father, we have offended. But more importantly, perhaps, perhaps, there are enemies within our own heart. So here's some things to think about. Look at Romans chapter 8. These are great passages. We know them. I thought of them in a little different way. In Romans 8, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. The Spirit of God is our legal advocate. There's no advocation for the... Condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua because through Messiah Yeshua, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now look at this. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin and sinful man, here's the verse, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. A heart that is lured to live according to the flesh is fought against by the spirit of God who is enabling us to live our lives in accordance with the forgiving grace of our Heavenly Father. That's what Paul is saying. Do you have rebellious thoughts? Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. He is our legal advocate. He's empowering us to not think rebellious thoughts. He's empowering us not to live in according with the way we used to live. Look what he says in verse 11. Do you have addictive behaviors? He says, if Messiah is in you, your body is dead to sin. And if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You have addictive behaviors? It's the spirit of God can set you free. That's what Romans 8 is telling us. The Spirit of God is a person in your heart, in your life. And if he has residence in your heart and in your life, Paul is telling us, if your Lord to live according to the flesh, our legal advocate is there to undergird us, empower us, and to strengthen us. If you have rebellious thoughts, the Spirit of God is there to enable us to think his thoughts. If you have addictive behaviors, he's there 
to empower you not to live in according to them. Is your heart prone to fear? He tells us in, chat, in verse 15, a very, another passage here. He says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You've received the spirit of sonship and you can cry, Abba, Father. Do you have a heart that doubts your relationship to Messiah? Do you sometimes think, am I really a believer? Look at verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Do you ever struggle in prayer? It says in verse 26, the spirit himself prays in words that cannot be uttered. He is our legal advocate and we neglect his role in our lives. We have two advocates in our behalf. We have Yeshua in heaven, 1 John chapter 2. If you look at that passage, this is, I'm trying to wind this down, in chapter 2, the same word, parakletos, that Yeshua uses of the Holy Spirit, he uses, is used of himself by John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. That's the word parakletos. I like that. Speaks in our defense. Some translations say we have an advocate. He's our legal defense. And we also have an advocate on earth. The Holy Spirit is making our case that we are his children. 1 John 3 tells us that. You can look it up. We have two advocates that are on our side in order to enable us to taste and see and experience and feel and know that the Lord is good. When I think of Shavuot, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, 3,000 were slain. In Acts chapter 2, at Shavuot, the law was sealed on their hearts. They were free from its condemnation because the Spirit of God descended and 3,000 were not slain, but 3,000 were saved. Check that out in Acts 2. It's a parallel. So what's the takeaway? What do we get from all this? Romans 8, 9 says, Our lives are changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not mechanical. The Spirit of God has to take hold of our hearts. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the divine person who has taken a permanent residence in your heart. God dwells in you. Transformation of life will occur not by pushing religious buttons, but by embracing the characteristics of the one who indwells us. And principally, what, what characterizes is the sense of selflessness. Philippians 2, Paul's, Paul tells us that Messiah emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, took upon himself the form of a man, and became a servant, a slave, and endured death. Selflessness. And what does Yeshua say about the Holy Spirit? When he comes, he will testify of me. Selflessness. He will point to the Yeshua. Not only will he testify of him, but he says, and he will glorify me. Selflessness. You want to experience the Spirit? Stop thinking of yourself. You want to experience God? Deal with your pride. You want to know the Spirit working to transform? Give your life to others. Be preoccupied with others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua gave himself, became a man, and died. The Spirit of God comes and points to him. 
And now if we're going to experience him, we must embrace selflessness. That sounds a lot easier than it is. If there's, you take nothing else away from what I've said this morning, when you go through your life and choices need to be made, think of how you can benefit another rather than yourself by the choice you might make. And lastly, we have two advocates, which is everything we need. One is enough, I think, but we need two, and we have to. Let's rely upon God's Spirit. I believe if we do that here at Beth Ariel, and you do that in your life, and if I was to do this in my life, we would be so utterly transformed. Don't you think that? Doesn't this passage just seem to say that to us? You know, I mean, listen, listen, I'm learning from this too. You know, I had to study it, then I have to hear me say it. <laughs> you know? But I'm telling you, this is the truth of God's word. None of us attains this fully or completely. But we need to seek the Lord to do this in and through us. And if we do, there's no telling what things can occur through the power of the Spirit of God unleashed in and through our lives. Well, let's pray. The worship team can come forward as can the ushers. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. What great words that you have provided for us. That passage in Colossians and Ephesians is so neat to see, Lord. The passages in 1 John that speaks of Yeshua and the Spirit of God as our legal advocates who are alongside of us, battling the one who would accuse us night and day but also the one that battles our own sense of insecurity and need. And so, Lord, we pray that his encouragement and strength would be what fills us and would be what sustains us. And so, Lord, we pray that the words of Messiah might richly, fully, completely dwell within us. So make us students of your word, devoted to your word, seeking your word. And then, Lord, may we be ones that connect with you as the living God of the universe. Take hold of our lives, I pray. And even in these few moments, if there is anyone here that first and foremost might need to invite Messiah into their lives, you can do that now with a simple prayer that says, Lord, come into my heart, make me new. Forgive me of my sin and make me one of your own children. And for those who have said a prayer like that, perhaps for some many, many years ago or maybe just the other day, If you want to experience this relationship with the Holy Spirit, you can begin that process now as we've heard these words. And you could say a simple prayer that asks the Lord to sear these truths to our heart and to bring about these truths in and through our lives. So you might like to pray 
oh Lord, I am so grateful for your spirit that you have given to us in light of the fulfillment of your ministry here on earth. I am grateful for the gift of salvation you have granted to me, but now, Lord, may I be yielded to your spirit. May he take full control of me. May you help me be a better student of your word than perhaps I have been. And help me to be yielded to your guidance and your direction. May your spirit fill me. And may he guide me all the days of my life. So if you pray to either one of those prayers, God has heard you. And he will lead you and he will guide you. Father, we thank you for the gifts that are to be given this morning. Lead our leadership to use them responsibly. That the needs of others would be met and that your word would go forth and that your truth would be made known. We are grateful for your blessings this morning and we pray your blessing on each and every one who has come. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.